Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. President Joe Biden selected Jerome Powell for a second four-year term as U.S. Federal Reserve Chair and elevated Governor Leo Brainerd to vice chair. And I guess uh, we're talking about consistency here, and that's kind of what the market likes with the S&P up nine-tenths of one percent this morning. Let's get some color behind the decision. We can do that with Craig Torres, Federal Reserve and Economy Reporter for Bloomberg News. So, Craig, again, uh, I guess this the message here today is consistency. Yeah, yeah. And the elevation of uh, Governor Brainerd to vice chair is interesting in that uh, gives her a little bit more agency over monetary policy, I think. Um, I can go into that if you want. Yeah, please. Okay. So chairs, uh, Taylor, have to kind of be in the center, right? They can't be like on one side of their committee or on the other. They have to find the consensus. And right now, uh, you two both know the consensus is shifting toward tighter policy. Mm -hmm. So where I think Governor Brainerd comes in as a voice that doesn't have to be in the center, but kind of can kind of push hard on the flank um, and maybe push the consensus one direction or another. Um, I wouldn't uh, uh, suspect that she'd oppose the chair but she she can exercise a lot of weight here. Um, that that's how I view it. Hey Craig, what do you think? I guess what you know Taylor and I were just talking earlier. This just feels like a decision that could have been made days ago, if yeah, not weeks ago. Any I thoughts to the, to, to the timing here? I don't have a lot of thoughts uh, of the timing, and as you know, there are more vacancies. Um, it does seem that the delay gave rise to a lot of, um, frankly, distasteful personal digging at both these people. So I don't know why it took so long. People say Democrats are a complex lot now. Um, so maybe there was some work to do. I, I just don't know. On that note, Craig, it's not just sort of the two headliners that we got today, but a vacancy for vice chair of supervision to other vacancies as well. Are we going to hear more about those in early December? And, you know, who do we think could be in the front running for those? I mean, clearly, um, the White House will want uh, diverse voices at the Fed. Of course, that's important. Um, uh, so I would expect them to go in that direction uh, on the two governor's seats. And on the vice chair of supervision, wow, that requires a lot of expertise. It's highly complicated. Um, obviously, Democrats like Elizabeth Warren want to see a new direction after Randy Quarles. I really don't have any idea uh, who they're going to pick for that. But it probably won't be uh, as complicated, uh, as, as controversial um, as their pick for uh, OCC. So, Craig, we're going to hear um, from the president um, and the uh, Fed Chairman Powell and, uh, and Governor Brainerd at, I guess, 120 Wall Street time here. What do you expect to hear from the president as it relates to these selections? You know, I think what he said a lot is um, – He's emphasized independence. And so now we have a Republican as chair, a Democrat as vice chair. I think he'll strike that note. But I think he'll also strike 
uh, uh, Paul, the note of inflation is high, and he expects that independence to lean against that. If you look at polling on Biden, um, inflation is, is really hurting him. So uh, I think those are the two things he'll bring up. And Craig, talk to us more about that, because we're, some have said this is one of the more difficult times that we faced in Federal Reserve history, given inflation is ticking up, and yet there has been an increased emphasis on meeting maximum and full employment, and the measures of that full employment are looking a little bit differently than they did before. How are you thinking about a balancing act of tackling inflation, but maximizing full employment? So, uh, good observation, Taylor. And I, I had a story on this uh, on the terminal and on our website yesterday. So this is a challenge, right? They made they went around the country in 2019 and 2020 with this uh, trumping that in, uh, maximum employment is a broad-based and inclusive mandate, which is aimed at. Uh, correcting their past mistakes of tightening before things like minority unemployment rates had uh, moved down substantially, before female uh, labor force participation have moved up substantially. So what are they going to do here? How are they going to keep that pledge but go on the fight uh, uh, against inflation? I think one answer is gradualism. This is a highly credible central bank. They don't have to use a lot of power to get um, inflation expectations nailed down. But uh, you, you pointed directly at the challenge there, uh, Taylor. Craig, just like 30 seconds, do you think this White House is adequately you know, touting the success they're having with the economy coming out of this pandemic? Or it just seems like maybe the inflation narrative is overtaking it? It does, as I said, it does seem to be overtaking the public sentiment for sure. And that's showing up in lots of places. As you both know, uh, inflation, it's probably in your food basket when you go to the grocery store and other costs you have. Americans really, of all levels, okay, Americans of all income levels, really don't like inflation. Yep. Craig Torres, thanks so much for joining us. Craig is the Federal Reserve and economy reporter uh, for Bloomberg News. I want to bring in Brian Bendig. He's president of MJP Wealth Advisors. Brian, thanks so much for joining us here. I don't know. I'm looking at my screen here. I see a lot of green here. So the market likes, I guess, some continuity at this uh, Federal Reserve. What do you make of the announcements this morning about Fed Chairman Jay Powell? Good morning, Taylor. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, you know, less uncertainty regarding um, Leadership at the Fed obviously reduces some concerns in policy direction moving forward. I mean, Chairman Powell has done a great job in trying to be as transparent as a communicator in light of all the conflict, uh, conflicting variables. I think, um, you know, the focus is going to be moving forward. Are we going to stay at this pace of, of bond tapering uh, or will that be accelerated as, as, we, as we look at uh, economic numbers uh, moving forward and obviously some uh, commentary coming out of the St. Louis Fed, um, you know, which is encouraging the FOMC to continue to look at that policy. But I think at the, at the end of the day, um, you know, less change is good, especially when considering um, some of the news out of Europe and, and in the oil markets and, and obviously inflation and interest rate. We have a full uh, full plate here. So one less item on on uh, on on the um, on the list is, is, is better for, I think, decision makers moving forward. 
you talk about the news out of Europe. Of course, we can talk about COVID cases. We can also talk about the Bundesbank talking about 6% inflation. And this is a global inflationary story. How are you thinking about markets next year as you have a Fed that's trying to confront inflation, maybe walk back comments that it's uh, less transitory than they thought, but also trying to tackle a full employment mandate and the changes and what full employment really means? Great question. I think we need to think about inflation actually into three parts. Uh, and I'll take the easiest part, which is that the Fed does have a dual mandate. So until we reach uh, full unemployment, I think the Fed is going to be very cautious about raising short-term interest rates. And based on our analysis, um, full employment um, is getting to an unemployment rate probably around 3.8% when taking into account uh, the number of folks that have retired early or have chosen not to re-engage on a, on a full-time basis in the economy. Now, the other two parts of the inflation story, I think, is breaking down the components of CPI. If we take a look at food, energy, auto sales, and some of these items that are really impacted by the supply chain inefficiencies, we think that those core components of inflation should come down as we move into Q3 and the beginning of Q4, second half of next year. I think the 12-6 curveball or the point of uncertainty is really around wages and wage labor as being a, a critical driver of inflation year over year. And I think as we look at the level of engagement in the workforce, we look at the productivity numbers uh, moving forward, how technology is impacting uh, employers' decisions, as well as, to be fair, the cultural shift that's going on, I think, domestically between people evaluating, do they work to live or live to work? Um, the Fed's going to keep a watchful eye on that. And I think that as time goes on with science, you know, trying to help us lead out of this pandemic and we're optimistic that next year will be an epidemic, um, that should help the labor markets and cool some of the wage uh, labor um, inflation concerns. But that is definitely something I don't think anyone can prognosticate with accuracy as of this point in time. Hey, Brian, you know, looking at the S&P, boy, what a year investors have had up 26% year to date. When you talk to your clients about 2022, how do you start the conversation? Absolutely. I, I think moving forward, the, the, the point is to break it down into a couple quadrants. I mean, the first is looking at things from a fundamental economic perspective, which obviously is driving valuations uh, and looking at corporate earnings and the pessimism that have gone into corporate earnings and, and the fact that, you know, over the last successive quarters, we, we're beating those expectations and earnings growth for next year is still robust. We're thinking about a 4% global GDP growth uh, perspective, supply chains, uh, inventory levels uh, uh, being healed, uh, demand for uh, goods and services exceeding supply. So we're still um, optimistic about the market uh, continuing to grind higher over the course of the next 12, 13 months. But at the same point in time, we have to be cognizant of those risks. And those risks are policy decisions coming out of Washington and the Fed. It's obviously the confluence of variables around interest rates and inflation. So it doesn't mean we're 100 percent risk on. We definitely need to find areas to allocate capital um, that, that can that can think about portfolio management and asset allocation, but doing it a little bit different. And that's right. why I think, you know, looking at, you know, assets like real estate, for example, 
might be a better hedge, let's say, than, you know, trying to stick to the traditional 60-40 portfolio with, with bonds being, being the, the other side of that allocation. Hey, Brian, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts here on this market. Brian Vendig, he's president of MJP Wealth Advisors. Paul, we know, of course, the big news of the day yep. has been some of the consistency, the clarity coming out of the White House when it comes to the Federal Reserve. Jay Powell, of course, getting the renomination for the head of the Federal Reserve and Lael Brainerd, of course, the nominee now for vice chair of all of that. We talk about some of the headline news, but really, Paul, what stands out to me is some of the headline news that we've gotten out, out of the rate markets. Yep. You have two-year yields now climbing about six basis points. Let's do all of this with Ian Lingen, Managing Director and head of U.S. rate strategy for BMO Capital Markets, where he helps run the fixed income strategy team. And Ian, maybe talk to us about some of the jerk reactions that we see within the rate market, up six basis points across the curve. What does that tell you? Well, I think that the biggest takeaway from today's events was that Biden has effectively doubled down on Powell, saying that this is the person that we think should be leading the tightening campaign, the end of QE in the first series of rate hikes. And what we're seeing in the market is that any risk that we would have a more decidedly dovish chair has been eliminated. And so we're pricing in rate hikes. We see that in the two-year sector, the three-year sector, and the five-year sector. And what I'm watching is the continued flattening of the 530s curve that we expect will actually be very thematic in 2022 and be somewhat at odds with what one would typically expect for this point in the cycle. So, Ian, uh, Taylor had to, you know, correct me earlier this morning. She was so disgusted by my lack of knowledge of the yield curve because I said, hey, I look at the 10-year and I see it at 1.6%. It's kind of been around there for a long time. What's the big deal? And she says, no, you're looking at the wrong part of the curve. Look at the short end where, you know, the two-year's gone from, you know, a little more than 20 basis points up to where we are today at, uh, you know, close to 56 basis points. What does that tell you? Why should I be looking at the short end of the curve? Well, what it tells us at a minimum is that borrowing costs are going to be increasing for a lot of the corporate sector and for a lot of the economy, because most rates, with the exception of mortgages and longer dated paper, tend to be focused on the two- and five-year sector as key benchmarks. And that's why the Fed's tightening campaign or potential tightening campaign is going to have so many ramifications for the outlook on inflation, as well as the potential for slowing growth in a recovery that, quite frankly, has been uh, going pretty strong thus far. But 2022 and 23 are, uh, are key periods of uncertainty for that. What about borrowing costs for the Treasury? Your notes out looking at twos and fives today. What do you expect? I do think that the Treasury Department has done a good job historically in terms of terming out their debt. So a uh, rising rate environment won't be too dramatic for the budget in terms of uh, federal borrowing. In the very near term, the two- and five-year auctions today, given the holiday-shortened week and some of the price action that we have seen, will represent an important litmus test for investor demand. But all else being equal, the backup in rates, I think, are going to provide an attractive buying opportunity for investors in the front end today. Ian, how do you think the the Fed will move here, um, you know, assuming they finish their 
you know, repurchases, the kind of kind of winds down mid next year. How do you think they're going to be in terms of raising rates in 2022? Because there's some folks out there like Priya Misra of TD Security suggesting they ain't going to do anything to 2023. What do you think? Well, I think that we'll have a lot of information over the course of the next two weeks running up to the December FOMC meeting. And if they're actively discussing accelerating the tapering process when they meet in December, that suggests that they could be done with QE, not in the middle of 2022, but earlier, let's call it the uh, end of the first quarter. And then that opens up the possibility for two rate hikes or potentially more if the situation dictates it. What I worry about is that Powell has come out and he has said that the Fed is expecting inflation to moderate in Q2 and Q3. So that's effectively the chair doubling down on the transitory narrative and saying we're going to continue to assume that this is a temporary influence on inflation until at least the middle of next year. So while we might see an argument to be made to end QE more quickly, at the end of the day, we suspect that the Fed will be content to deliver one rate hike in 2022. Is that then the why behind the flattening of the yield curve that you started this conversation with and you said it was traditionally not what you would expect in this part of the economic cycle? Well, I think one of the key reasons that we're seeing the curve flatten is that there's already so much inflation in the system and the Fed is has proven that they're going to be uh, reactive, perhaps not proactive, but trying to make sure that inflation doesn't get out of control and so in that, in that environment, we would typically expect it, the curve to flatten, but we wouldn't expect it to flatten with outright yields flat to lower. And I think that that's the real interesting part of what we're seeing play out in the market right now is that there's inflation that the market believes the Fed can counteract. But the global growth story has kept rates contained overall. And when we think about it, Each individual economy is coming out of the pandemic in a different setting, and I think that's what has contributed to that. Very good. All right, Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Ian Lingden, Managing Director and Head of U.S. Rate Strategies at BMO, Capital Markets Income Strategy Team. That's Bank of Montreal for the folks that go back a little bit. All right, let's talk tech with Dan Ives. He's the Managing Director Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. There's a million ways we can go with Dan, but I want to start in honor of Matt Miller with Tesla and the EV market. Um, Dan, you've been so out in front on this story, and you've been so kind to share your thoughts with us here at Bloomberg Radio and TV over the years about your bullishness about this story and this market here. As you think about 2022, how do you think the EV market, from a competitive standpoint, is going to evolve, and, and, and then how does Tesla fit into that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's great framing into 2022 because I think this is where we see the next level of adoption for EVs. I think you're going to see a re-rating on the likes of a GM and a Ford because of what we see on EVs is those companies have success, and more and more the street views them as disruptive technology plays. And you look at Lucid and others that are going to benefit because we're talking about $5 trillion of dollars over the next decade. But with the, but ultimately, the name that's going to continue disproportionately benefit is Tesla. And that's why this is a stock, despite the Musk Circus uh, Twitter poll, 
I think now this is a stock that's on its way. 1,400s are base case, 1,800s are bull case. Talk to us about some of the bull cases that you see more generally, Dan, when you think about next year. It was so interesting. Paul and I were earlier speaking about a big call out of B of A, saying that tech is in you know, one of the biggest bubbles that they've seen going back since 1999. But you have a Federal Reserve that's holding rates still relatively low. How are you thinking about tech and tech bubbles into next year? Yeah, I mean, and I covered tech during the bubble and during the burst. And when I compare them, it's an apples oranges because the fundamental growth stories are happening. It's a fourth industrial revolution that's happening across cloud, cybersecurity, 5G, as well as disruptive tech with EVs front and center. So I view it totally different in terms of the fundamental stories that are happening. Now, some could, you know, have worries about valuation, but we're talking about growth over the next three, five, seven years. And there's a scarcity of growth stories. Many of them are intact. That's why we view NASDAQ 19,000 for 2022. And, you know, many investors that have stayed focused in the right lane, on so many of these valuation calls, you missed Amazon, you missed Netflix, you missed Tesla. And and I think, you know, the worry is you're going to miss some of these others that are really part of this fourth industrial revolution. Dan, how do you think? I'd love to get the Dan Ives view on the metaverse. To you, what is that? And is it something you want to pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's serious dollars that's going after we'll call them as an internet 3.0 or 4.0. And I think it's important because it's not just Facebook in terms of metaverse. Because when you look at Apple, and I believe Apple Glass comes out next summer, the AR, VR headset, that's just the start of really what's going to be an arms race going after metaverse between big tech and as well as pure plays on gaming, as well as other areas, there's names like Matterport and others that play into this theme. And I think it's one where today you don't necessarily have the revenue. But going forward, this is not a hype theme. I mean, it's real dollars being spent. And I ultimately think it's really Cupertino that's going to lead the metaverse. I think Facebook's on the outside looking in when it comes to this, and they're going to have to spend significant dollars to catch up. But is there any regulatory risk? We have an administration that is very against and verbally has come out against big tech about big conglomerates. What's the regulatory risk for you next year? There is regulatory risk, and I think we've seen that in terms of what coming out of the Beltway as well as Brussels. But our view is that it's likely fines and, importantly, the lack of consensus within the Beltway is ultimately perceived bullish for tech because the lack of consensus shows it's going to be hard to have legally changed antitrust laws. And that's why right now it's been a risk but it's viewed as a contained risk in the eyes of investors. I'd also say you look at a company like Microsoft, which has already been through the antitrust issues late 90s, 2000. They're much more in position of strength to do acquisitions versus I think a lot of the traditional big tech, which are going to be constrained, especially with that you know, shining light from the 202. Hey, Dan, 20 seconds. What's your top pick for 2022? Continues to be Apple. Um, you know, I mean, Apple to me, is a $3 trillion mark cap going to next year. I think it's a massive cycle that's going on on iPhone, and services is a re-rating. And this is one I think we're going to see it move higher, despite chip shortage. That's the other thing I just want to say. Chip shortage, trans story. Yep. And I view it as just the reason to own more and more Apple. 
All right, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. As always, appreciate getting your broad view of the tech sector. Dan Ives, he's a managing director and senior equity analyst at Wedbush Securities. He's also a proud alumnus of the Penn State mm -hmm. University, where I wrote many, many tuition checks over the years. But Dan's been consistently bullish on mm -hmm. technology, consistently mm -hmm. bullish on the EV market, and boy, has he been uh, right, and uh, we appreciate him taking some time now. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.